Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, remotely by co-host Joe Wolfon. Yo, yo. What's going on, Mr. Wolfon? How was your week I'm, off? It was really nice. Uh, badly needed. I know uh, you're going to take some time off, I think, next week. Yeah, after such a long season, I just... I don't even think I realized how burnt out I was, but I had a lot of sleep to catch up on, and... I honestly didn't do a whole heck of a lot, and that felt really good. Got to rest the body, man. Rest the mind after a grinding season of us sitting in front of our computers and watching other people play basketball. Um, but it was, as, as we mentioned on the last podcast, it was a taxing season. Um, we're already starting to look forward to next season and the off season that will set the table for next season. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at five teams who to us have the most intriguing and fascinating off seasons ahead. And we'll begin with uh, a team that I wrote about last week that the latest episode of the scores unfiltered on YouTube is about. And that was probably the team that dominated headlines the most last week because Daryl Morey, after 13 seasons as GM and 14 years with the franchise left the Houston Rockets, much like Mike D'Antoni did a few weeks earlier. So let's start there because they are they're the most fascinating team, not in the sense that they can necessarily do much with the roster, but in the sense that they have this team that was basically built to play one way. And now they're going to have a new general manager and eventually a new coach that's probably going to have to figure out a way to diversify that team a little bit, even though it was only built to play one way. Um, so your thoughts, I guess, I know it's a little late to be asking your thoughts on the Mori departure, but yeah, your thoughts on the Mori departure and where the Rockets stand in general. As far as the Maury departure, I guess it just seems like he saw the writing on the wall. And it's the rare instance in which, you know, these teams always try and pitch these breakups as mutual, particularly, you know, when it's a coach, they, they frame it as a mutual parting of ways, I guess, to try and help the coach save face. When in reality, in most cases, if not all of them, it's just a coach getting fired. But I, I think this is the you know the rare instance where I really do think that this was as much or more Daryl Morey's decision than it was Tillman Fertitta's. And um, you know whether it was the, you know fundamental disagreements that he had with Fertitta, the idea that you know Fertitta wasn't particularly willing to spend into the tax as it was. And the pandemic has only exacerbated that concern because obviously, you know, his businesses being hospitality businesses are not doing particularly well right now. And he is over leveraged and seemingly uh, in a world of financial hurt. So that doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. And then there's the fact that there isn't really a whole lot that anybody can do with this roster right now. Like, the asset cupboard is bare. They don't have any particularly intriguing young players who can either, you know, develop into foundational players for this team or be flipped in trade packages for other players who can become part of their core. They control their own pick, I believe, in 2022, their own first round pick. They, and apart from that, I don't think they can, they have control over their own first rounder until 2027. They control their own first round pick twice in the next seven years. So they don't really have a ton of cards left to play after wheeling and dealing every which way for the last 
five odd years and remaking this roster around Harden so many times, it feels like they've really reached the end of the road because Westbrook on his contract and Eric Gordon on his contract just feel completely immovable right now. And so any tinkering is going to just have to happen on the margins. And I just don't know how much of a difference that's going to make. You know, Raphael Stone, who's taking over essentially as general manager, I mean, I I expect that he will try and bring in an actual big man so that they do have a little bit more versatility of style and they don't have to do the small ball thing all the time. But is it going to be like an impact player? Like, who is that player? You know, is it like Nerlens Noel? Is it Tristan Thompson? I mean, and, and apart from that, it's just how much can this team's style really change when Westbrook and Harden are at the center of it? Like, I don't think it's likely that this is suddenly going to turn into a motion offense where those guys are cutting and screening off of the ball. It would be great to see if they did that. But I just think like their play style is so entrenched and defensively, like, you know, switching every screen has become so much a part of their defensive identity as well. And I honestly kind of think that that is the best way actually to maximize the personnel that they have on hand at the defensive end of the floor. So I think any tweaks that we see in terms of their roster or their style of play are going to be fairly minor. And I think for Maury, it's almost like he kind of tried everything. He'd burned through his bag of tricks and there weren't really any cards left to play. And I think he's getting out of this at the right time, to be perfectly honest, with his reputation more or less intact. Yeah, I like that you brought up the cards left to play because that's how I framed it in my piece uh, last week was that Maury admirably so, always felt that he had enough in his hand to to make a winning hand, right? And he kept churning through players and assets and coaches too, you know, until he got to D'Antoni in this like insatiable quest to win a championship because he believed, especially once he acquired James Harden in 2012, that he had enough to make a winning hand. And I think he is, while you know, some of the off-court stuff probably did play a role, whether it was, you know, a, a very taxing season for him personally after it was his tweet that set off the firestorm that led to the NBA essentially losing its business in China for a year and losing estimates of $400 million. Not that Daryl Morey did anything wrong. You know, I think most people listening to this podcast, I think, support democracy. But, you know, I, I that was probably a very taxing period for him because he had a lot of the league against him. Not fairly so, but he did have a lot of the league against him. You know, I'm sure to some extent it's a fair and genuine statement on his part when he says, uh, I believe he's got a couple of high school or college age children or, or kids that are taking a year off between high school and college that he wants to spend some time with. Obviously, very genuine there. And so I think all those off court things are valid. And I think, um, you know, he's got his own personal desires, but I think he's also smart enough of a guy to realize what he's leaving behind on the court. And basically, I think this guy that always operated from a position where he thought he can turn anything into a winning hand is smart enough to realize he's folding a losing hand. And I think he's okay with that. You know, he he's not backing away from something with the thought of like, ah, if I stayed one more year, could we have got it done? Like, no, I think he gets it, especially with D'Antoni gone, the guy who like orchestrated the small ball symphony he always envisioned. Mm -hmm. um, and and yeah, I mean, you 
you already mentioned they've got no real discernible young talent that any team would want. If you just look at their cap sheet in general, they only have six guys who have guaranteed contracts for next season, right? We take the options and stuff out of it. So if you want to talk about like players they technically could be dangling in trade, there's only six guys. There's James Harden, who we can get into the potential, you know, trade market for James Harden. But at the moment, at least, I don't think the Rockets would entertain that. Maybe later this year, they might. Right now, I don't think they would. So Harden, consider him off the table. Westbrook, I mean, I guess the Knicks, according to reports, could be the team foolish enough to do it. But for the most part, you need a team to make a really bad decision because Russell Westbrook, um, Russell Westbrook as a player option for $46 million, what, three years from now, two years from now? like Yeah, $47 million you, in 2022-23. Yeah, so for the most part, you can assume no team wants to deal with that. And then you get through that and it's like, okay, uh, Eric Gordon, who could make $20 million three years from now. You know, he's, he's still got almost $80 million left on his deal. Eric Gordon at 31. And then Robert Covington and PJ Tucker are on pretty team-friendly deals, but they're also the backbone of your small ball switchable defense. I don't know how much uh, of a rush you should be in to get rid of those guys. And then the only guy we haven't mentioned yet is Daniel House. And again, not exactly moving the needle there. So no real trade assets if you want to get better. You know, if you want to tear it down, you could trade James Harden. But if you want to take another shot at the title, you got no trade assets to get better. No draft assets, two in the next seven years. You've got a freshman GM about to take over. You don't have a coach right now. You know, you, with this core, or even with Harden, you could say, you haven't even got to the finals before. Like, at some point, you just have to look around and say, this team has no means to get better. And what they are right now is clearly already not good enough. So, you know, what gives here? Something has to give. At some point, while I don't think they should trade Harden because... You know, he's the type of superstar talent that's the basis of contention and you trade him for a package that you hope delivers something that maybe three years from now is half as good as James Harden is now. But at some point, they might have to entertain it. And at some point, James Harden might force their hand because if they get off to a rough start this year or, you know, just have another disappointing season, maybe next offseason with one less year of team control is when James Harden decides he wants out. Either way, this is, you know, all a very long way of saying the Rockets are boned. <laughs> well, okay, so I'll, I'll try and, I guess, play devil's advocate or try and look at the optimistic side of things. I think that uh, Austin Rivers, I assume, is going to opt out. He has a player option for $2.4 million for next year. So I don't know if they make any effort to retain him beyond that player option, but if he's off their books... You know, I think they can. They have a non-guarantee on Ben McLemore. They could conceivably bring him back and a team option on David Nwaba. They could bring him back and still essentially have access to the full mid-level exception. So with the full mid-level, I mean, that could get you somebody pretty decent. I mean, I mentioned Tristan Thompson, who I think, you know, could be a potentially decent fit there. Um, maybe even Montrez Harrell. I don't know if, he's, he, if he played himself down into that range. And if he would be willing to take kind of like a prove it contract to go back to Houston, but you know, they can, they can start to talk themselves into guys in that salary band. If Fertitta is willing to go into the luxury tax, which, you know, who knows, but I think the other side of this is 
things looked maybe a little bit worse than they actually were for them in the playoffs because of Westbrook. And, you know, playoff Westbrook in recent years does not have the best track record. But I do think it's worth pointing out that this year he was both coming off of COVID-19 and coming off of, I think, a quadriceps injury that he suffered almost immediately after returning inside the bubble and was clearly not himself. And for this team that was in so many ways designed to optimize Westbrook, for him to be a shell of himself in the playoffs was really, really damning. And I think that, I don't know that it would have been enough for them to actually beat the Lakers, but if Westbrook was off, uh, like operating at full freight the way that he was down the stretch of the regular season, then I think that's actually a pretty competitive series and maybe we're looking at this team differently. But, you know, the fact is, and I wrote about this after they lost, and I know you kind of mentioned it as well in your piece talking about Maury, like what the playoffs to me have really become about are, you know, not just not just versatile players, but teams themselves having versatility of style. And that's something that this Rockets team decidedly lacked. They didn't really have a plan B. And I don't know how much that's realistically going to change moving forward like they have been kind of committed to their particular style of play I don't know I mean we'll see I guess what what a new coach could make of it I'm really frankly baffled that Jeff Van Gundy is somehow a finalist for their coaching job because just based on his on-air persona at least seems completely antithetical to everything the Rockets have been about and to the way the team is currently constructed and so I just don't see really how that's actually a fit here. Yeah, and the, and the other the other finalists are John Lucas and Steven Silas, I believe, who, like, John Lucas hasn't coached, I don't think, since 2003. I don't think Steven Silas has any head coaching experience at the NBA level, so I, I can't really weigh in on what their coaching philosophies are or how that would look. But So you, you think, you look, Maury's out the door, D'Antoni's out the door, these two kind of architects of the team and its style... Uh, that's been in many ways on the cutting edge for the last few years. How is that going to change what this team looks like? And I just don't know if like the actual personnel on the team leaves them much option one way or another. Yeah, I don't think it does. And, you know, in terms of the coaching vacancies, the, the or sorry, the coaching candidates, Jeff Van Gundy as a head coach in 2020, to me is one of the, potentially the most fascinating thing about next season, if it comes to fruition, because as you mentioned, based on his on-air persona and based on the reputation he had as a coach in the 90s and 2000s with the Rockets at one point, he does not seem to mesh well with the modern NBA. You know, if you listen to him on broadcasts, he doesn't really seem to understand the player empowerment era and kind of seems stuck in the past with sometimes how he says coaches should handle modern players and modern stars. And I think if he comes at the job, from that perspective, he will get a rude awakening and realize very quickly that he does not run the show. Um, stylistically, it's hard to say. Like I, I don't want to hold anything against Jeff Van Gunny because you know he was coaching in a, a very different era and coaching to you know strengths of his team in those eras. So maybe stylistically, he can adapt, and you know I would assume he could based on the fact he's at a front row seat to watching the revolution of the game over the last couple decades. But yeah, to me, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to me that this guy that hasn't coached in 13 years, who had a very established reputation as this like no nonsense, 
I'm the captain of the ship. You know, I'll maximize my stars, but I'm not going to give in to them. Would be the leading candidate on a team with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. I just don't know how that's going to fly. And I think it would be absolutely fascinating. And again, I think, you know, if that goes a certain way, maybe that helps nudge Harden towards the door a little more. Like, I don't want to keep harping on that because as I even said, uh, both in the written piece and the video I published, like, I, I don't think they should. I don't think you trade a superstar unless you absolutely have to. But I just think like the writing's on the wall here that it would take something really, really unexpected for me um, for the Rockets to be good enough or to improve enough over the next year or so to keep Harden in Houston. Because James Harden is now, I believe, 31 as well. And obviously, you know, these numbers don't mean the same as they did maybe 15, 20 years ago. But from a peak athletic performance standpoint, it's still considered the wrong side of 30. And um, you just never know how many more kicks at the can you get. And I don't know if James Harden wants to waste any of those kicks on a team that, you know, is on the downswing. So Harden and Westbrook have basically the exact same player option in 2022-23. It's uh, about $47 million for both guys. I don't think there's any doubt that Westbrook is picking up that player option. If you had to guess, do you think that Harden winds up picking up that player option or you think he winds up opting out after 2021-22? Oh, man, it's so hard because we don't know. Like, we just don't know what the cap situation is going to look like the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, usually a player of his caliber, you can say, nah, he'll opt out and sign another max at that point. But it's so hard to say. Like, if the cap goes down a bit and... I don't know. There's like an injury involved. I'll I'll say this. I'll say right now, I'll say he will opt out and probably sign another max at that point, whatever the max is in a couple years. But I'm much less convinced of it than I would be for almost any other star right now. Yeah. Well, so if, I mean, if you take for granted that he is going to opt out, he has two years left on his deal. And this is, you know, in this day and age, kind of when those trade rumblings start to percolate and I I don't think it'll be a huge surprise if like midway through next season if the Rockets are underwhelming that we start to hear that kind of chatter and I I don't know I mean you kind of said it like it that might be the Rockets only avenue out of the situation that they currently find themselves in I would expect that they could extract a pretty significant haul for Harden but, I mean, I think that this team as currently constructed should be good enough that, I don't know, it's worth giving them another year to see if they can improve upon last year's result. But, yeah, I don't know, man. They're definitely in a tough spot. And I really... I, the, whatever, Whoever the new coach is, I think priority number one needs to be figuring out how can Westbrook and Harden actually complement each other? Because I think the way that the team was designed was that everybody else on the roster was there to complement those two guys individually, like independent of each other. But it was very siloed. Like they didn't operate really in conjunction. It was kind of them taking turns, isolating while everybody else spotted up around them. And neither of those guys... This we can go back to like when this trade first happened and the concerns that we had about it. 
And I think us kind of talking through it and thinking, okay, what it, what are Harden and Westbrook going to be doing when the other guy has the ball? And are the Rockets going to figure out a way to actually make good use of those guys off of the ball? And we didn't see that happen. I think, you know, one of the biggest problems that this team had in the playoffs, especially in that series against the Lakers, when the Lakers are really aggressively loading up on the ball, is just a complete lack of off-ball movement from either of those two guys. And is that something that a new coach coming in can fix, given that Harden and Westbrook have essentially been doing the same thing for the last 10 years? It's hard to see, right? So I I don't know. I don't know if that's going to change or if they're just sort of going to double down on what they've already been doing and and hope that they can do it a little bit better. Yeah, and hope that maybe they get some cooperation from Harden and Westbrook whichever way they go because I do think that's that's a very big part of this right like let's not forget that the reason the Rockets kind of ended up in this situation is because according to multiple credible reports the reason Westbrook is there and not Chris Paul is because James Harden and to an extent um, Tillman Fertitta wanted it not Daryl Morey so there are plenty of stories over the years about how stubborn Harden is with his Mm co-creators and he think he's got the one he wants now at least off the court and from a friendships perspective and I just don't know I mean I hope both he and Russ are open to whatever the new coach's philosophy is and if it is a way to actually maximize their partnership I hope they're open to it but I'm also not holding my breath that Harden will be just because he seems kind of difficult to please in that way And yeah, I just think in so many ways, the Rockets are at such a crossroads. And honestly, Crossroads is probably putting it (laughs) lightly. Like there's not, Crossroads would indicate that there is like another path to go that could potentially also be good. Like I I think- They're on a one-way road to hell. Yeah, exactly. I do think it's interesting- They're on a rocket ship to hell on them. (laughs) I think it's interesting that, I mean, Maury has taken a lot of flack over the years for his, let's call it like his coldly analytical approach to team building. And the way that he has sought to mathematize basketball, I know a lot of people have, have taken issue with that and have almost celebrated the Rockets' failures for that reason. And those failures have been treated as failures, not just of like the Rockets, but of a particular kind of basketball philosophy. And I think it's interesting that by far the biggest stain on Maury's record as the Rockets' chief basketball executive is a trade that had nothing to do with analytics and that, you know, I think if Maury had his druthers never would have happened. Like that move had everything to do with interpersonal dynamics and nothing to do with the numbers. And it was one that I think, you know, Maury felt kind of handcuffed into making. And then, you know, it's not just the fact that Chris Paul gets shipped out for Westbrook because of James Harden's whims, but that also has this cascading effect where, That is what leads to them making this all-in push on small ball. That's what leads to them trading Clint Capella because it's not working with Westbrook and Capella both on the roster. And we're still feeling those ripple effects. So I I honestly think that, you know, in a lot of ways, Maury comes out of this, or he should come out of this, feeling absolved and looking pretty good. And I mean... I don't think I need to say this. Like, I, If he wants to get another job in the NBA, he's not going to have any trouble doing it. I think he immediately shoots to the top of the list of available 
free agent general managers. And whenever he feels like he's ready to jump back in, I think there will be a job for him. So, Honestly, um, I'm not as convinced about that because of the the China situation. And I do wonder if there's any lingering effects there. I'm not saying that should be the case, uh-huh. but I don't know if he will be as in demand as his resume suggests he should be. Is that like kind of lingering ill will or you think it's more like concern that he's a loose cannon and might do something like that again? That's <laughs> no, gonna cost I, I think it's lingering. I think it's, I would think it would be lingering ill will. Uh-huh. Well, no, again, let's not, say but, that would be a really disappointing approach for the ownership class to take. 100%. But, you know, as we've noted countless times this year, especially like at the ownership level, this league is not as progressive as they want you to believe. And at the ownership level, I definitely believe that a maybe a majority of owners in the league hold ill will towards Daryl Morey. And so while whoever else might be involved in the decision-making would want Daryl Morey to come run the organization, the, the person who has final say and who writes the checks uh, might not be as enthusiastic about that as we think they should be. Mm. Um, okay, last question on this for you. Let's say they basically just run it back from last year. The, the Chris Paul for Westbrook trade never happens. And they and they keep Capella. I don't know. Maybe they find another way to get Covington, but like they don't wind up going all in on small ball. Chris Paul is still there. Do you think they make it past the Lakers? No, I don't. But I think they're in a better spot today. Than they oh, are. Yeah, they're undoubtedly in a better... I mean, they have <laughs> control right. of four first-round draft picks that they don't currently yeah. have, and, now, and they have a much more manageable, I think, contract in Chris Paul's on the books, because Chris Paul's only on the books for another two years and had a much better season than Westbrook had, in my opinion. So The counter to that is, I guess, given how icy the relationship had become between Harden and Paul... You know, is it one of those seasons from hell where just the chemistry's off all year and they and the team as a whole never quite meshes? And are we sitting here now after a second round loss anyway, talking about how now Harden wants out or something because they mm-hmm. didn't get rid of Chris Paul when they he, they wanted him to, or maybe Chris Paul doesn't even have the resurgent season. You know, Chris Paul was very motivated by that trade. He literally went vegan for Christ's sake to you know to to right some of the wrongs and and you know, people assuming that he was on the day. I'm not saying he wouldn't have done these things and had a great season regardless, but, you know, I think, as we've mentioned before, all these guys are still human beings and they have things that make them tick. And I just, you know, maybe Chris Paul isn't quite as motivated to have, you know, turn back the clock type season he had this year, had that trade not gone down. So it's tough. Like the easy answer is they'd be in better shape right now, but Perhaps the correct answer is that actually they'd be in the you know the same spot from a um, team performance perspective, and they'd have more assets to deal with, but they'd still be dealing with unhappy stars and potentially hard and wanting out. Right. Because just I'll just throw a couple numbers out there from the Lakers series to illustrate how disastrous this was for Westbrook at, in particular, and you know the Westbrook Harden partnership because Harden had a really good series, and he probably won't get credit for it because. You know, this narrative that he is a playoff choker is like too entrenched at this point, I think, for a lot of people to see around it. But he averaged 29.4 points, 7.2 assists on 66.4% true shooting in that series. He was actually incredible. But Westbrook, you know, in large part because of the blitzes that the Lakers were throwing at Harden, finishes that series with the highest usage rate on the Rockets, close to 33%. 
and the lowest true shooting percentage on the Rockets at under 48%. With Harden on the floor without Westbrook in that series, the Rockets outscored the Lakers by 5.5 points per 100. With the two of them on the floor together, they got outscored by 12.7 points per 100. So... I mean that, and that that just sort of frames it right there, right? Like this is what this team is facing, and and what they have to figure out is like how can we get these guys to play well together? And I do think Westbrook being fully healthy will help, but that's only part of it, right? There's a whole lot more that needs to to go into repairing that on court relationship, however strong the off court relationship might be. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the last thing I'll add is because you mentioned, you know, Harden's reputation for being a playoff choker. And again, this is something else I mentioned in the piece and in the video series is it, there are to me some similarities between the way Harden is perceived right now and the way Dirk Nowitzki was perceived before that 2011 championship run in that, uh, you know, both are offensive greats who are seen as defensive liabilities, who are on teams that at least to public perception often underachieve in the playoffs. And it's the fault of the star because of whatever deficiencies may lie in their game. Now, obviously, they're different styles offensively. You know, no one's quite like Harden offensively ever. But I just think there are a lot of similarities there. And, you know, you could look at that and say the lesson to be taken away from that is you just keep plugging away. When you've got a star that good, you just keep plugging away and figuring it out because you never know when the stars will align for you as they did in 2011 for the Mavs. And then, you know, Dirk has... First of all, that was not Dirk's first unbelievable playoff run, but it's the one that changed everything from a reputation standpoint because his team ended up winning, right? And so now everyone looks back at Dirk a lot differently than they did before that, or at least some people do because they thought he was a playoff choker before that, right? So yeah, I guess that that's my last word on it, that guys that you think are playoff chokers, even though most of the times they're not, um, are always just one I don't even want to say good run because they've had good runs before. They're just, they're always one break away, you know, from things lining up for them in one playoff run. And then all of a sudden that reputation is gone. And then you years later, go back and look at their numbers in general and realize, oh, wait, this guy was actually a big time playoff performer. It's like, yeah, no shit. He was one of the I'm, best five players in the game for the ch- ch- like for the big chunk of his career. What, you think he just forgot to play in the playoffs? <laughs> like, I mean, look at Jimmy Butler, right? Like, I don't think that anybody necessarily saw Jimmy Butler as like a playoff choker, but I think the the kind of knock on him was, okay, well, if Jimmy Butler is the best player on your team, you're topping out as, in like the second round, basically. He'd never been past the second round before. And that was just something that had become almost accepted wisdom. And then obviously the Heat roll to the finals and Butler is unbelievable and it completely rewrites the narrative around him. And... And Chris Paul is another great example of that. Like he has repeatedly performed exceptionally well in the playoffs, but there are like a couple of moments that really stick out. You know, these meltdowns that he's had at inopportune times that have essentially, I think, become outsized in the popular imagination, you know? Which you can say about Harden as well, especially in like playoff clinchers or close, sorry, elimination games. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Um, And, you know, I think people remember Chris Paul's meltdown against the Thunder better than they do the game-winning shot that he hit to beat the Spurs in Game 7. And they remember, you know, the blown 3-1 lead against the Rockets more than they remember 
those ridiculous playoff runs that he had with the Hornets back in the day when he almost single-handedly took them to the conference finals. Like it's unfortunate, I guess, that failures tend to get amplified in the playoffs more than successes do. And that, I mean, shit, it's really hard to win a championship, right? You know, one team out of 30 does it every year. And, and those other 29 teams are somehow seen as failures where I think, you know, if you, if you just zoom out and look at the big picture, like to me, James Harden is absolutely good enough to be the best player on a championship team. And I think, you know, the Rockets put the right team around him a couple of years ago and they got extremely close to dethroning maybe the most talented team ever assembled. I don't know if they can do that again just because of the situation that they put themselves in. But I do think Harden is still very much good enough to be that guy. Uh, it's it's now up to, you know, the new front office, the new coaching staff, and everybody who's currently on the roster and is going to be on the roster moving forward to try and make that a reality. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Rockets. Uh, We will spend less time on a few more teams who we think have fascinating off-seasons ahead. And the first one is one that before we went on the air, you said you weren't going to take the air unless we talked about this team. (laughs) So that's the only reason we are talking about them. And that's uh, your Indiana Pacers potential landing spot for Mike D'Antoni. What about the Pacers offseason fascinates you? I think it starts with their coaching search and and who winds up taking that job. Obviously, you know, D'Antoni has been at the forefront of the rumors about their coaching vacancy. But another name is Chris Finch, who has also apparently been at the top of their list. And he was an assistant with the Pelicans, I think, for the last couple of years. Before that, he was an assistant on the Nuggets staff. And we know, uh, having spent a little bit of time around the Raptors the last couple of years that he has also spent some time serving with Nick Nurse with the British national team, weirdly enough. So I think, you know, there's definitely a sense that, that he is kind of an inventive offensive coach. And I think if there's one thing that the Pacers need right now, it is some offensive inventiveness because their offense, I think, has been stuck in the past a little bit. They've routinely been among the league's bottom five in terms of three-point attempt rate, free throw attempt rate. They've been one of the highest volume mid-range jump shooting teams in the league. Their sets are, you know, not particularly creative. It's a lot of pretty rote, familiar stuff. And I just think that they're... It's an interesting situation they're in. Like the, the Oladipo thing is also really fascinating because obviously those two sides are very far apart in extension conversations. That's not going to happen. And I, I just don't really know how they or any other team in the league that might consider trying to trade for Oladipo is supposed to value him after 
the 18, 20 odd games that he played after coming back from that devastating injury. And especially given like you could go and compare it, I guess, to the Gordon Hayward situation where he really needed a year to get his legs back under him and came back and had a very solid season this year after being another year removed from that injury. Now Hayward was never as dependent on explosiveness and speed and just overall athleticism as Oladipo is. So I think that's where it starts to get scary. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that he will never get back up to the level that he was at in 2017, 18, but can he get back up to, you know, a a borderline all-star level rather than say an all NBA level? I definitely think that he can. And I, I guess the question is, do the Pacers want to find out if he can, or do they want to kind of maintain that sheen of mystery and uncertainty and trade him now before the rest of the league realizes that, oh no, like that old Oladipo is never coming back. Yeah. I mean, the Oladipo trade scenarios are so interesting to me because I mean, for all the reasons you listed, but like to me, this is as clear cut as it gets in terms of being pretty confident. A guy going into a contract year is not coming back to where he currently plays a year from now. And I'm not just saying that as like some slight against Indiana at all. I'm I'm just reading the tea leaves. And, you know, we talked a lot when these kind of rumblings first came out about Oladipo around the time the bubble was kicking off and, you know, talking about how a lot of times where there's smoke, there's fire in terms of guys heading into contract years with a year or two left on their deals, being unhappy and, you know, not being on the same page in terms of injury management and all that stuff. And then you start reading some of the stuff already connecting him to Miami in a way that almost seems like it's an open and shut case, which, you know, if you're the Heat, who knows? Maybe they already know he's their plan B if they don't get Giannis or something. But it's pretty rare that we can be this confident, a guy going, you know, we could be confident, but I'm basically certain he's not going to be a pacer a year from now if if he hits free agency. And what makes it so interesting is because Oladipo even with the injury concerns, I think is good enough to have at least some trade value. You know, he's not, we're not talking about Russ with a $47 million player option three years from now. Like I think there's at least enough intrigue in Oladipo, even with one year left in his contract, that he has some trade value. And the Pacers are a good team, but they're not good enough in my opinion to, uh, they're not good enough and they're a small market team. Like they're in a situation where you need to extract value from a guy like that if you know you're going to lose him because while you're good you're not good enough to say well he's worth more to us in our championship run for the next year uh, you know than he is on the open market because he's not you guys aren't like let's be real the Pacers you know the players will say another thing but on an executive level I'm sure they understand they're probably not competing for a championship next season right so there are so many factors that go into this where I just think it makes way too much sense for a trade to happen. And I think it would be best for both parties for it to happen before the season starts. And and yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of value Oladipo has before that season starts, before he can prove he can get back to that level, or perhaps before he can show that he never can get back to that level. Like it's, right. it, I agree with you that the coaching search is you know fascinating in its own right, but for me, just the the entirety of this Oladipo situation on both sides from the Pacers perspective and from Oladipo's future perspective, make him maybe the most fascinating player of the 2020 offseason. 
I, I yeah, this like this whole situation, and and I think that they're connected in a way. Uh, and we were sort of talking about this a little bit off air, but I do wonder if if D'Antonio's the guy, you know, does that maybe make it more likely that Oladipo actually sticks around? Because if wow, there's break, one thing, uh, sorry to interrupt. Rare breaking news on the pod. The Pacers have just hired Raptors assistant Nate Bjorken as head coach. Holy moly. Yeah. So speaking about... Uh, so a different with, coach from the Nick Nurse yeah, coaching from tree. from the Nick Nurse coaching tree. Exactly. Wow. Okay. I didn't even realize that he was... Uh, Neither did I. He was like one of the finalists for that job. They kept that pretty hush-hush. But I guess there's still... Which jobs are still left? The Pelicans? Pelicans. Rockets. Is D'Antoni going to have a job this season? Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm wondering. Like, I think it's just the Pelicans and Rockets, man. Okay, so he's not, unless he's going to the Rockets. Um, <laughs> could you imagine? The new GM is like, actually. <laughs> Although that uh, wouldn't yeah. make sense. Raphael Stone, in my first move as yeah. new Rockets GM. I mean, look, that, that Pelicans job should still be pretty appealing. If, oh, I, and, I would and love I if Dan, and Tony, Tony would be a great fit there. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense. Like, I would love for him to get that job. It's just, I don't know. Um, so, Nate Bjorkren. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, what do you know about Nate, about Nate Bjorkren, Cash? Uh, I know that, I mean, I don't know enough about him to be any kind of expert, but based on our time um, around the team, you know, as, as everyone listening knows, we're based in Toronto. So our, a lot of our reporting and, you know, story ideating and um, source gathering, quote gathering for stories happens in Toronto at the arena, at Scotiabank Arena, often in the visiting locker room, but still we're around the Raptors enough. And, um, you know, the only thing I know about Nate Bjorken is that he's apparently like a, a high energy creative coach, which you'd expect from a guy on Nick Nurse's staff and and one the players have really come to like and respect one Nick Nurse really trusts but other than that I really couldn't tell you I have no idea you know what his coaching philosophies are or what his X's and O's might look like or um, you know how he is as like a player relationship guy once he gets the head coaching job it's it's a great unknown but I mean definitely a stunner <laughs> yeah um so Bjorkman, I think, coached with Nick Nurse in the G League before uh, making his way to the NBA. He was an assistant with the Suns under Hornacek for a couple of years. And look, he was part of, and, and it's always really hard to know this, right? When, especially given how expansive modern coaching staffs are and not always knowing who is in charge of what or who has a louder voice than whom. But I think... After what seemed like a pretty thorough vetting process and interview process that involved some pretty high profile coaches, including, you know, Dave Yeager was in that mix before he signed on with the Sixers staff under Doc Rivers and obviously D'Antoni, as we were just talking about. I think it's there's obviously a sense that Bjorkren had a lot to do with the Raptors success the last couple of years and the Raptors success had a fair amount to do with their coaching staff and Obviously, that was one, particularly on the defensive side of the ball this year, that was very creative and willing to try new things and think outside of the box. I, I do think that, that we'll kind of have to take a wait-and-see approach with that one. And it might take some time before we actually get a sense of what Nate Bjorkren's coaching philosophy is. But as we were just saying, I, I think 
that something that the Pacers really need is just more outside of the box thinking and for somebody to modernize their offense and just give them a little bit of a jolt. And so I don't know, I was, I was on the verge of saying essentially that maybe D'Antoni being hired there might be a step toward Oladipo sticking around because D'Antoni has typically run these guard oriented offenses where he's really been able to maximize uh, primary ball handlers and put them in position to succeed, spread the floor for them and have them run, you know, infinite pick and rolls. But I don't know. I don't know if that is going to happen under Nate Bjorkren. And I don't know if that is going to change the team's thinking about Oladipo or Oladipo's thinking about sticking around in Indiana. But there's one domino, I guess, that has fallen in this very, very fascinating Pacers offseason. Yeah, another thing with Bjorken that I can't say is he's known um, kind of from a player development perspective as, you know, good in that spectrum, in the development component of coaching. And, you know, I guess we shouldn't try to read too much into this, given that we're all just learning about it. But, you know, I do wonder if maybe that tips the Pacers hand a little bit in terms of where they're thinking, you know, are they already looking at, you know, what this team might look like in a post Oladipo world? Not that they necessarily need to do a full rebuild, obviously, because they've got Brogdon and Sabonis, or at least one of Sabonis and Turner, or Turner if they trade one of them. But, you know, I do think maybe the fact that they've gone to a coach that's got a reputation for player development might be showing their hand a little bit in the fact that they will be in more of a development phase, I don't know, going forward, as opposed to a win-now phase, which, again, it's, it's so tough and fascinating in its own right, because... You can trade Oladipo for a you know, decent package and still have enough there to be a very competitive team in the middle of the Eastern Conference, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, they're probably a couple moves away from being not very good. Like I, The Pacers are such an interesting team. They're, they're better than a, a regular middling treadmill team, but they're also, from, like, from a ceiling perspective, they're not really, you know? Yeah, it's like, uh, let's think about like what would have to happen for this team to actually take the next step and be in the mix as like a real serious contender. I think first thing is they need Oladipo to get back to like 2017-18 level. That might honestly be it. Like that might be enough. He was that good that year. But, you know, beyond that, look, if, if what TJ Warren did in the bubble is real, I think that's a pretty significant step as well and that to me like if Oladipo you know settles in as being something more like the 2018-19 version of him which was an all-star but a clear notch below where he was the season prior before he got injured then you know maybe between it's not like you have an A plus lead playmaker type but between Oladipo, Brogdon and TJ Warren you kind of have that in the aggregate almost. And, you know, between those three guys, I think maybe you actually do have enough self-creation and playmaking to have like a top 10 offense while hopefully maintaining what was the sixth best defense in the NBA this year. And and the defensive side of the ball gets into some interesting questions too. And and this is where the whole Sabonis-Turner conundrum becomes really fascinating to me because Turner to me is the linchpin of that defense and is the biggest reason why they have been in the top six on that side of the ball for the last two years now. But obviously the offensive fit between those two guys is quite tenuous. And Sabonis to me is more of a natural five. 
and Turner being there and being such an important part of that defense and playing big minutes means that Sabonis is playing a lot of minutes as the four defensively. They kind of invert their roles on offense where Sabonis is more of an offensive five and Turner kind of spaces the floor. But defensively, Turner is the five and Sabonis is the four. And I just, I, I don't know that that is the right use <laughs> of Sabonis. But I also don't know if having him play, the, like, he's a little bit stuck between positions defensively as Sabonis is. So I don't know if there's any easy answers there because getting rid of either one of those guys would really hurt in one way or another. Like Sabonis was such an important fulcrum of their offense this year. He, I think, led the entire league in elbow touches and was like top five in front court touches in total. He led the league in screen assists. Like their whole offense kind of revolved around him. And um, we saw, obviously, when he was injured in the bubble, they were able to reorient that in a way that put the ball in Warren's hands a lot and the floor was a little bit more spaced. But then you also saw the kind of problems that they ran into against a switching defense in Miami where they didn't have Sabonis who could punish the back end of switches by just brutalizing smaller guys in the post. And they didn't have a high post playmaker who could be a connector when Miami was snuffing out their first screening actions, you know, like it was, I think without him, they lacked a lot of offensive creativity. And so I think it would be really difficult for them to get rid of either one of those guys. But again, like playing the two of them together has only brought the middling success. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I would keep Sabonis and see what you can get for Turner. I would, I just think, um, I, I just think it's kind of past due time, uh, for that partnership and for the Pacers to I, I also think it's past due time for that debate to even still rage on about which one is the better player. I think Sabonis is the better all-around basketball player. And yeah, if you can get something from Miles Turner, which you should be able to do, and you know, you add players and talent and assets to a team that already has Sabonis and Brogdon and either Oladipo or what you can get from Oladipo, I just think I think it goes further towards not only improving, but further balancing an already good deep team. So I, I think that's the route they should go. But we can move on to another team. And from an Eastern Conference team that I don't think has a very inspiring ceiling to a Western Conference team whose ceiling is a damn championship. Uh, and that's the team that just finished with the worst record in the league, the Golden State Warriors. Because holy hell, you want to talk about an interesting offseason and just an interesting 2021 season. It's Golden State. If Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green are healthy and anywhere near what they were, you know, two years ago, this team's a contender. And then you add in Andrew Wiggins, whatever you think about Andrew Wiggins. But I'll say this, based on the moderate strides he took in various aspects of his game this past season, if Andrew Wiggins is your, whatever you want to call it, fourth best player, third option on offense under the tutelage of Steve Kerr in this system, where I think you can't help but get better and get smarter, especially as an offensive player. Like, I think I think they can unlock something there in Wiggins. And I'm not even talking about, like, the star potential everyone wants or that he'll be an all-star, but I think if that guy is your third option on offense, you know, if he is the guy that's maybe um, taking advantage of some of the weak spots in an opposing defense that is very worried about Steph and Clay shooting and worried about you know, the Steph Draymond pick and roll, and you have Andrew Wiggins there to kind of pick out the weak spots. 
and be an off the dribble creator and honestly take and make some tough shots that when he was the number one guy, you you didn't want him doing, right? Because he's taking 23 shots a game and 14 of them are coming from long two range. But if he's your number three option and he's kind of uh, in catch and shoot situations or he's like your release valve that can take and make a tough shot when you need him to and can draw even a little bit of defensive attention from Steph and Clay. Like, I think you're in a good spot. And then they've got the number two overall pick. And everyone wants to talk about what they can turn that number two pick into, whether it's package with Wiggins, which I still doesn't think makes sense because of Wiggins' contract or whatever the case may be. Everyone seems to want to daydream about, you know, the talent the Warriors can add if they trade that number two pick. I think there is actually a potentially easy answer here and that's they keep the number two pick and there are scouting departments that know a lot more about prospects than I do but at first glance from these eyes I'd say you just go into next season with the number two pick draft James Wiseman who is this hyper athletic big who most teams drafting at the top of the draft would maybe steer clear of because he's not the type of offensive force that you build a franchise around. And teams at the top of the draft generally want saviors. The Warriors can afford to draft a guy like Wiseman, bring him along slowly, right? They don't need him to be a savior on either end. They can essentially have him spend his rookie year as like one of the NBA's best role players, and, and actually plug in this guy that makes a lot of sense for their roster. Like James Wiseman, you can make the argument, would immediately be the best big man this team has had in this era of Warriors basketball, which is kind of insane, but it could be true. Like, again, this guy's hyper-athletic, mobile big, vers- somewhat versatile defender, could be an elite rim protector. And on offense, you know, he can he can score down low, but he's a rim roller, good screener. Like he... He can be the five that makes a lot of sense for this team as a starter on day one without them needing him to be any kind of savior or star. And all of a sudden, you're going into next season with a lineup of Curry, Thompson, Wiggins, Green, Wiseman, or whoever the hell they pick. You know, you've got Eric Pascal, who don't forget had a really eye-opening season as a rookie last year, led the team in minutes. This team is... I don't even want to say close to being right there again because it's not even, it's just literally just show up, be healthy, and you're probably right there again. And, you know, if they end up moving the pick, it's fascinating in its own right. But yeah, I just think there are so many different ways the Warriors can approach this. And to me, if they're healthy, if the big three is healthy, every which way takes you on a road that leads you potentially right back to contention. You don't look so, convinced. Ob- ob- well, look, obviously the, the number two pick thing is super fascinating. And it's super fascinating because it's really rare that you have a team as good as Golden State, a team with legitimate title aspirations, picking that high in the draft. And I think, you know, conceptually, there's really no telling how they're thinking about this. I think really it'll just depend on what kind of packages are actually out there for that pick. I don't know that they're necessarily like they don't, I wouldn't think, have their minds made up one way or another about what they want to do. I think they probably have a list of guys that they believe it's worth flipping that pick for. And if they aren't able to get one of those guys, they'll be happy just to make that pick. And I I agree with you, Wiseman. I don't know a ton about this draft, but it sure seems like he's the guy who makes the most sense there. 
to me, like really the biggest question is like, what does Clay Thompson look like? Because by the time the next season starts, it will have been, you know, almost two years since he's played in an NBA game. And coming off an ACL injury after that much time off, I I don't think anybody really knows what he's going to look like or how effective he's going to be relative to what he looked like before. Draymond to me is another big question mark because he wasn't particularly good this past season. And obviously we've seen Draymond's effort wax and wane given the stakes. And I think it's sort of an open question whether his performance this season had more to do with his physical decline or whether that had more to do with the fact that the Warriors didn't really have anything to play for. And his MO has always kind of been to crank it up when the Warriors do have something to play for and to coast when they don't. So Draymond's the ultimate 16 game player. He invented the term. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So, so I think, you know, obviously all of that is going to factor into this, but like, it's possible that Wiseman ends up being the best big man that they've had in this era of Warriors basketball, but how long is it going to take him to get there? And can the Warriors afford to wait for that? That's what I'm saying. I, I don't think, I, I think what I'm saying is I think he has the potential to be that the day the season starts because his skills to me translate very well to what this team would need out of a big man. And uh, if you think about the bigs this team has had, like they haven't really relied on them when they needed them, right? They go small a lot of times when when they need to win games or win minutes. And I think Wiseman can change that equation for them. Again, if if they needed him to be a, a franchise savior or, or if they needed anyone from this draft class to be a franchise savior, I think they'd be in trouble as a lot of teams at the top of this draft are. But based on what I think they would need from a starting center and what Wiseman seems ready to do right away with his skill set, I'm saying they, they just plug him in and he's that guy. Yeah, I think the history of rookie big men is that they really struggle, especially defensively in their first couple of years in the league. So I'm not convinced. And again, I'm not a draft Nick, so maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm not convinced that he's just going to come in, you know, ready-made plug-and-play five who uh, is going to be a positive impact player for them in his first season. Uh, I History suggests that that's probably not going to be the case. And I think, let's assume that that is true, that it's going to take him two, three years to get to a point where he's actually a reliably positive contributor on both sides of the ball. Is that something that the Warriors can afford to wait on? No, if that's the case, then you trade him. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess that, that'll just be the decision that they have to make is whether they think that he is ready to be a positive contributor right away or whether they think it's going to take time. And then they'll make an assessment, I suppose, based on that. Because I think on the one hand, like the the talent that they have on hand will make his job a lot easier. And this goes back to what we were saying about how unusual it is for a team as good as the Warriors to be picking this high. Ordinarily, the picks that we see go that high in the draft are immediately saddled with a ton of responsibility. And I think that probably has a lot to do with why their impact metrics are so often so poor their first couple of years in the league, because they're being asked to do a lot for teams that don't have a ton of complementary talent on hand. And I think, you know, given all of the skill, playmaking, defensive acumen that exists on this Warriors team already that could conceivably make his job a lot easier at both ends of the floor. You know, on offense, he could essentially be primarily just a screen and dive guy. And defensively, you know, they have guys like Clay and Draymond who can cover 
for some of his weaknesses. But at the end of the day, if he's playing the five for them, he's still going to have to be the last line of defense. And if he's not ready to do that, if he's not making quick reads, uh, if he doesn't know where to be, then that's going to be trouble no matter who he has defending in front of him. So obviously there's a ton for them to consider about, you know, whether they want to make that pick, whether they want to trade that pick, what kind of player they'd be looking to get. Like, let's think about that for a second. Let's say they were, let's say they made the decision to flip that pick. What kind of player would you be looking for uh, to try um, and get in return? I think, you know, asking for like a star is asking way too much, uh, given the weakness at the top of this draft. I mean, number two picks, the number two pick, like it's. Yeah, but everyone has scouted. You know what I mean? Like everyone has scouted the draft. I, I'd want, I guess I'd want like a borderline all-star. Victor, no, not Victor Oladipo. Um, but yeah, I guess, because realistically, you think someone's giving up an all-star, like a current in his prime all-star for the number two pick in what is widely considered the weakest draft in years? Let me just look at the all-star team. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, no, it, it it really depends. I think it depends a lot on the team and on that particular all-star. I mean, like, let's say, all right, for example, would the Magic trade Nick Vucevic in some package for that number two pick? This team that is, like, really stuck on the treadmill of mediocrity right now. Have yeah, they might. Uh, do they you were think, do you think they were the eight seed year, the seven seed the year before. They've lost in five games in the first round both times, and here they have the opportunity to pick at the very top of the draft, and then presumably actually like tank their way to another high pick next year and actually engage in like I guess, a full scale kind of rebuild. I guess Vucevic is actually the kind of caliber of player I'm thinking of. Where yes, he is an all star, but. Who, by the way, I think he would be an amazing fit in yeah. Golden State. Because he, he can stretch the floor and he actually passes really well. Gives them an interior presence that they haven't really had. And can can hold up pretty well defensively in a drop coverage. So I, I think actually like it would require them to change their play style a little bit. But I think he would fit in quite well. So you, you make that move if you're the Warriors? The number two pick and something... I guess. Well, yeah. So they'd have to they'd have to make the contracts match. I think because they... that's the problem, right? Because Vooch makes a lot of money. Like this, this is where it gets tough for the Warriors because who are you attaching to that pick to make the salary? Well, I guess. I, I mean, so and, and don't and say Wiggins a... because why would Orlando want Andrew Wiggins? Like the, Andrew Wiggins is exactly the type of player the the Magic have stockpiled for too long. Like, yeah. No. I mean, well, this is really the complicating factor: is that Wiggins is the guy who, in so many of these trades, makes the money work. But that also devalues the package, I think, because he is a negative value asset. So like Wiggins plus the number two pick is a worse package than just the number two pick on its own. In a regular year with the number two pick that teams would just be desperate to grab. They'd say, yeah, sure. We'll take Andrew Wiggins contract. We don't care. But in in this year where like we're already talking about how underwhelming the draft is, is a team really going to take on that negative value asset contract? to get their hands on the number two pick. I, I'm just not sure. I'm not confident at all, actually. I don't think it would be crazy for the Magic to do that and think that Wiggins might be able to be a, an actual piece of their future. I know, like, obviously all of the shine has come off of him at this point, but 
I don't know, another change of scenery and the fact that he wouldn't really be in competition with anybody else for those minutes on the wing. I guess that that would depend on whether Fournier was coming back or not. We don't know whether Fournier is going to opt in or out. But yeah, I don't think I don't think it would be crazy for Orlando to at least consider that. Maybe maybe they demand that the Warriors throw in something else, in which case like let's say they asked for Pascal on top. So maybe now it's getting dicey for the Warriors, but like number two plus Wiggins plus Pascal for Vucevic, who is under contract for the next four years. He's 29 years old and is essentially in his prime. Like you look at a team with Steph, Clay, Draymond, and Vooch. I think that's worth considering. But anyway, so this is, we don't have to go through all our, you know, conceivable trade scenarios, but I think that this is what makes the Warriors so fascinating is like they have to decide whether they want to make that pick, whether they want to trade that pick, and then what kind of player they'd actually be looking for if they traded it. And um, I, I don't know what the deal is with Looney, who like barely played last year and I think had some sort of a nerve issue that might prevent him from being a significant contributor for them in the future. But like they don't really have any centers that they can rely on right now. Like what other bigs that they have on the roster? I, I guess they could kind of just revert to how they were playing before where their go-to closing lineup is Draymond at the five. And then they look to fill in those small ball lineups with clay back. And if they manage to add another wing and a deal for that number two pick, then maybe they can just grab a, another big man on the cheap and have that guy be like a token starter. But really they're, their reliable lineups in the highest leverage are just going to have Draymond at the five. There's a lot of different ways that they could go with it, but I'm thinking about, you know, that video that you scripted for our YouTube channel, where you essentially said that the injuries may have actually helped save the Warriors dynasty, you know, because it essentially allowed, like they, they get like a year off, which might not be the worst thing in the world for their core three players who are now all on the wrong side of 30. And they get this number two pick that they could use to potentially get a foundational player who's going to help extend the window well into the future. Or they they use that to flip, you know, into hopefully another star or borderline star who is just going to help them maximize the window that they have right now. And I think the optionality is really fascinating. Yeah, because look, like, obviously, and I don't want people to take that the wrong way. Like, I'm not saying the injuries were good on the whole, you know, like, especially Clay, like blew his knee out. That's never good for an athlete and a basketball player, especially, but just looking big picture, if you're, if you're looking at the franchise as a whole, that was going to lose Kevin Durant anyway. And you look at it like, okay, that the, the big three is healthy last year, but they're coming off five straight finals trips and the Lakers and Clippers have, you know, geared up. And I, I just don't know, how much the Warriors had left in the tank, even healthy going into last year. And yeah, as you mentioned, they kind of got to reset a little bit and got a lot of time off. And for Clay especially, because we've seen sometimes how long it takes for a player to really get back to full force after an ACL tear. You know, Kristaps Porzingis missed, what, 20 months and came back and still wasn't quite himself. I know it's different. He's a big man, different style. But if the extra time off means that Clay Thompson comes back close to 100%, you know, and the extra time off for Steph just means maybe a few extra miles on his body. And even for Draymond, if it allowed him to recapture some of his, whatever he had lost, you know, in the grind of those five seasons, 
as I mentioned at the start of this rant, you know, a few minutes ago, already just if you can tell me that that big three is healthy and ready to go, even if it's for one year, even if it's like, okay, this is their last year at anything close to like peak performance together, I would still say, well, that's that one year is going to be a team, a year where they contend for a championship. And then you add in Wiggins and the number two pick, whether it's Wiseman or whatever, or a trade involving those guys. Like, yeah, just to me, this is, you know, I mentioned the Oladipo situation as like the most fascinating player related story of the offseason, but the Warriors to me are the most fascinating team in general this year and, and this offseason because I view them as a contender already that has the assets to get better. And I don't know any other contender that has that right now, mm-hmm. at least not at, at these kind of assets. Yeah, uh, that's 100% true. All right, we, we do want to get to a couple more teams. Uh, we'll touch on them a little quicker than we did the first three, but um, one in the East, one in the West. We'll start in the East with the no longer defending champion, Toronto Raptors, who- It was a hell of a run. It was a hell of a run. Um, the longest one-year run in uh, in NBA history for obvious reasons. You want to talk about fascinating. They've got three core pieces set for unrestricted free agency. And Fred Van Vliet, Serge Ibaka, and Marcus Gasol. I think of the three, Fred Van Vliet is most likely to return, but he's also going to be by far the most expensive. And everything the Raptors do this offseason and in 2021, in the 2021 season, I guess we'll call it because it's not the 2021 season, is done with the foresight of knowing that they believe very strongly they are in the Giannis sweepstakes and they do not want to alter their max cap space. So where do you see the Raptors offseason going? You know, how do you think that free agencies of those three guys will turn out? And also, do you think the Raptors are able to straddle the line of still contending this year while keeping all of their options open for 2021? Or do you see this as maybe as the transition year that so many believed last season was going to be? Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, last year was a transition year. It just turned out to be a way more successful transition year than I think anybody anticipated. I think, you know, the, these 2021 plans have sort of been in motion, or at least have been in the back of the Raptors front office minds for the last two years. And I think all the decisions that they've made in the interim have been geared towards that, right? Like the Kyle Lowry extension was geared, I think, specifically towards that. And obviously, you know, their decision making is all led them to this point where they're coming off this extraordinary season where they finished with the second best record in the NBA. Um, We're a couple possessions away from going to the East finals where I think they would have had a decent chance at knocking off the heat and potentially being in a final series against a Lakers team that they swept during the regular season. Match up very well with, you know, I think they should come into next season fully believing that they have a chance to get back into that title mix. But that is contingent on how their offseason plays out and who winds up coming back. I do think, you know, Van Vliet is the most important variable there. But Ibaka and Gasol were both really big parts of their success last year. And I think it's, a, you know, what, what's fascinating to me about Toronto is this question and this idea of a bridge year and of trying to thread the needle. And in a weird way, I almost feel like things would be a lot simpler 
for the Raptors, like, and they might even be able to just breathe a little bit easier and have a lot more clarity in their decision making. If Giannis just came out and signed the Supermax tomorrow, <laughs> like, then I think they could shift their focus toward making sure that they get Van Vliet back. They could potentially shell out an extension for OG Ananobi and make, you know, make a decision about whether they want to give Serge a multi-year deal. Gasol is complicated. It's It seems like Gasol is probably the most likely of those guys to be gone. He looked very broken down, obviously, in that series against the Celtics, which is too bad because I actually thought, you know, despite his flagging offensive numbers and the fact that he had lost almost any ability to score inside the arc was still a really important part of their defense. He had his best defensive season in like at least three years. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're... they're there's a lot up in the air there. And I think, you know, the, the Ananobi extension is really interesting to me too. Like what, I don't know what that number would come in at or like what sort of common ground they'd be able to find. But this, this might sound crazy to some people who maybe didn't watch a ton of the Raptors this year, but given the leap that OG took this year, given how good I consider him to be defensively, I legitimately think that he is the best individual wing defender in the league. Not only um, should he have made all defensive team, he probably should have made all defensive first team. Yeah, I think we both had him on all defensive second team. But okay. given like if we if we'd included the bubble, I think right then, we were going based on the non bubble portion of the season. Yeah, that was when we did it, which was when the voters I think actually yeah, uh, yeah. they had to submit their votes before the bubble too. But given that, given his evolving offensive skill set and the potential of him, you know, taking another leap next year. I don't think it's crazy that if the Raptors let him get to restricted free agency, he is going to have a max offer sheet or something close to a max offer sheet on the table. And if they can lock him in now for something like four years, 72 million, let's say, that eats into their 2021 space, but it could potentially save them a whole lot of money down the line. And... um Again, it's just like their decision-making is totally clouded by the prospect of potentially having that max slot open for Giannis or for, you know, another free agent in 2021, of which there are many. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think they, they have a walkaway number with Van Vliet that is probably somewhere in the, you know, $20 million a year range. And I think it's entirely possible that there is a team you know, whether it's the Pistons or the Knicks or the Hawks that is going to be willing to go above that. And that's really going to put the Raptors in a bind because uh, Fred's been a huge part of what they've done the last couple of years. And his defense as a guy who's six feet tall that, you know, allows them to play him and Lowry at the same time, you know, two sub six footers essentially in the backcourt and still maintain an elite defense. And like his ability as a jump shooter, um, and the fact that he got a lot more comfortable with the ball in his hands this year, running pick and roll, like I think it would really, really hurt to lose him. And it would especially hurt if they lose him and then come up empty handed in the summer of 2021. And uh, I don't think any of these decisions are easy for this team. But I think what they would probably like their ideal offseason to me looks like they get Fred back for like four years, 80 million. Ibaka takes like a one year balloon payment you know, one year, 20 to $25 million, something like that. And then they have another really solid season this year and go into 2021 coming off another great year with the max slot available. Yeah. 
and, and then and I, that's that's a possibility like they could oh, have that dream scenario play out but yeah I, I don't think it's a pie in the sky type dream scenario i think it's a very reasonable dream scenario and um honestly it might end up being what plays out like i i still would put money on the raptors retaining fred i i think a one-year balloon payment for abaca makes sense for both parties and might end up being the most likely outcome and i think the og extension does end up waiting just because it you know it it's there's a risk involved for sure but i think when you're talking about stakes at this level where you are legitimately in the running to potentially acquire a franchise changing MVP caliber superstar, which the Raptors very much believe they are in the running to do. You just, you can't mess with that, you know? And I think, eh, I think, you know, OG and his agent and in general players and agents understand the business side of things, right? So I think he'll get it. You know, he wants his money for sure, but I think he'll understand that. And to your point, OG maybe looks at it like, okay, that's fine. I'll play my way into more money next year anyway. So I think it could work out for all parties. But yeah, I think, I think the most likely situation is they retain Fred Retain one of Serge or Mark, most likely Serge on a one-year deal. That's a bit of an overpay, but on a one-year deal. OG's extension waits. The Raptors have another very good season where they are at worst fringe title contenders and more likely probably real title contenders. And then they go into next offseason, you know, in as good a position as any team other than Miami to steal Giannis from Milwaukee. Last team. Quickly, your thoughts on their offseason. They're not going to be in the title conversation, but if, I don't know, if they keep everyone, they keep the band together, they'll be good again. Uh, I just doubt they'll keep the band together. That's the Oklahoma City Thunder. Given that Chris Paul, you know, when they acquired him, his contract was seen almost on the same level as Westbrook's. They were traded for each other, but now he is maybe the premier trade target in the league. So what do you make of Oklahoma City's offseason? Man, I I don't really know why they would be trying so hard to trade Chris Paul, to be honest. And I don't... Part of this is colored by, like, I listened to the Hoop Collective podcast a couple of days ago where Windhorst and I think Tim Bontemps were talking about this and throwing out trade scenarios. And we're really treating it as if, like, a Chris Paul trade would essentially be a salary dump and that the assets coming back wouldn't even really matter. And I think that would be patently insane for them to salary dump Chris Paul, given that they're, it's not like they're in luxury tax hell or anything like that. Like there may be like th- their salary might be a tad bit bloated for a team that is kind of in the middle of the playoff pack, but it's not like overly cumbersome. And there's only two years left on Chris Paul's deal and it's not like they're desperate to acquire more future assets. Like they have 15 first round picks in the next six drafts. Like that's that's an entire roster's worth of first round picks. Like they're not even going to be able to use all those picks and, and develop all of those guys. So I, I don't necessarily think that they need to be in any kind of a frenzied rush to like get Chris Paul off of their books and try and like pull in more future assets. I think, you know, the one thing I'll say is in terms of actual young players, there isn't a ton there, you know, beyond Shea Gilgis Alexander, like Dennis Schroeder is still relatively young against Dort Dort and like Darius Baisley, you know, and and that's it, which is not some home run of like a future core. Yeah. It'd be nice if they could get like uh, a young wing, a legit wing in there to build around with Shea. 
Right. Like if that's the kind of guy that they could get for Chris Paul, then I think that would start to make a little bit more sense to me. But if they're just like trading him to Milwaukee, for instance, for like a poo-poo platter of expiring contracts and Eric Bledsoe, that makes no sense to me. Like why not just run it back, be really good again, and just use all the picks that they have in the next few years to build up their young talent base and proceed that way. Like why blow it up before they actually have to? Um, and that gets into, I mean, the Gallinari thing is interesting too. I think he looks to me like a prime candidate for a sign and trade because there is minimal cap space around the league. And I think the kind of team that he would probably want to go to is a, you know, the, the kind of team that frankly just doesn't have the cap space right now to actually sign him, which would allow him to both get, you know, something in the range of, I don't know, maybe like a $15 million a year type of deal. And still wind up on a contender while also allowing the Thunder to recoup an asset or two. And that could work out for all parties involved. Because um, as things stand, it's like, I guess the Hawks maybe could sign him outright. But for them, it's like they're going into the season expecting John Collins to be their starting four with Capella starting at five. So I don't know where that would leave Gallinari. And then it's like, I don't know, the Knicks, the Hornets, the Pistons, like... I think it makes way more sense for him and the Thunder to work out a sign and trade with whatever team should want to acquire him. So that's another way that they can pull in, you know, yet more future assets. And I I don't necessarily think that they need to just be trading Chris Paul for the sake of trading him. Yeah, look, I talked about this, you know, a while ago, I think when maybe when the Thunder season first ended, that I don't think they should be in a rush to trade Chris Paul, um, given the season he just had. And the fact that he has, what, one year left on his contract? At most, two years left? He's got the option? Yeah, um, two years. He'll, two years because he'll, he'll, he'll pick up the pick option. Up so, yeah. Option. But still, like, two years left on his contract, given the season he just had, given how he already just rebuilt his trade value, and given how good your team was with him in the lineup, and uh, how good of a mentor he is as well for Shea and, and Schroeder to a certain extent as well, I just think, you know, they shouldn't be in a rush to deal in and I'm not saying they should, you know, be going all in on this season, but the way I look at it is you have enough future assets from a draft perspective that if anything, you can afford to use a couple of those assets and maybe Gallo in a sign and trade, as you mentioned, and see if you can make your team better because your team isn't as far away as people thought they were a year ago, right? And so I think you should be just as open to that, if not more so then you should be open to moving Chris Paul for the sake of moving Chris Paul. Like this guy, if he remains healthy, just proved he's still in that like top 15 all NBA-ish range that you'd need if you want to contend in the grand scheme of things for a title. And I realize that sounds crazy to even talk about OKC like that, but they're not that far off from that. They really aren't if you look at the numbers. And, you know, I know the argument is that, well, they know they're not going to compete right now. So they need to, you know, look towards the future when some of these other teams will fall off and they can rise. And it's like, that's a really short-sighted way of thinking, even though you think you're thinking long-term because, okay, the Bucks fall off if they lose Giannis or one of the Lakers or Clippers falls off. Well, guess what? Wherever Giannis goes is probably going to be the rising superpower. Miami is one move away from completely loading up again. One of the Lakers or Clippers are still going to be a contending team in LA, maybe with cap space. Like... The, the idea that, oh, we, we're going to build for this next window when there will be an opening. It's like, this is the NBA and you're in Oklahoma City. 
seriously, if no, you if you already have the remnants of a near contender with Chris Paul potentially under contract for two years, with a budding, I think, future all-star in Shea Gilchrist Alexander, some nice pieces around it. Um, Dennis Schroeder, who's an improving player against Dort, who you've got on maybe the best team-friendly deal in the league already, and you've got all those other assets. This rush to get rid of Chris Paul for the sake of it, to me, doesn't make any sense. And to me, they should be just as open, if not more so, to using some of those future building assets to build a team that could potentially sneakily contend right now. And that's the only thing I have to say about Oklahoma City. Um, the the one piece that I would mention just to kind of tack on to the end of this is Steven Adams has one year left on his deal at $27 million. And that is a guy that maybe they could look to trade. I don't know what kind of market there would be for him, if any. Obviously had a fairly disappointing playoff showing for them this year. And that had a lot to do with the matchup, obviously, like going up against the Rockets clearly just like wasn't the series for him. But this is like the fourth year in a row where he just hasn't really been effective in the playoffs and has looked a little bit broken down at the end of the season. So maybe that's a guy that they could look to flip and get something in return. But frankly, like at $27 million, like I I don't think they're getting back any kind of a helpful asset unless they're also taking back some bad money along with it, which maybe they'd be willing to do. But I think in that case, they'd probably just rather hang on to Adams and ride it out and see if maybe they can bring him back on a cheaper deal after that. And then, and, and Schroeder's on an expiring deal too. And, and he's a guy who maybe they could actually look to extend because he's only 26 and could definitely be part of, you know, the next contending Thunder team along with Gilgis Alexander and whoever else they use one of these draft picks on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think, again, another team where there's just like a lot of different directions that they could go, but they, I, I just don't understand. And maybe this is just coming from the outside and like internally they aren't in any kind of rush to trade Chris Paul. But from all the reporting that's been done about the Billy Donovan departure, it sure seems like that happened because the Thunder were looking to pivot toward more of a rebuild, which would obviously involve trading CP. Which could also just be they're doing him a favor. Like maybe he's made it very known he wants to go elsewhere mm-hmm. and maybe the Thunder are trying to, you know, do good by him. But in any event, uh, a lot of decisions to be made in Oklahoma City and the five uh, cities where teams reside that we talked about today. And a lot of decisions and different directions things can go for all 30 teams in an offseason where we still don't even know what the cap's going to be. We still don't even know what free agency is going to start. And for an offseason that will set the table for a season, which we don't even know when that will start. So really the only thing we know right now is that the draft should be on November 18th. But so you want to talk about fascinating off-seasons. I mean, the league as a whole uh, is going into the most uncertain off-season in league history, which will then lead into a season that precludes perhaps the most frantic free agency in league history. So the next stretch in a league that is already never short on storylines and drama is going to be beyond fascinating, even though we've used that word about 38 times in the last hour and a half of what's been one of, if not our longest podcasts ever. So with that, we'll sign off and let you know that whatever happens as the off season continues, we'll be here to cover it, <clears throat> whether that is a Chris Paul trade or a Nate Bjorken hiring.
Enjoy so, your time off, man. I will try. <laughs> for uh, for Joe Wolf One, I'm Jessica Shadow, Pound the Rock. <laughs>